our text that we read today from Mark chapter 5. It's a text where Mark uses a writing convention that theologians have come to call the Markin sandwich because he starts with one story, then delves into another narrative, and then when that seems to be wrapped up, he goes back and finishes up the first story. Now, if I were a theologian, I would not call it a Markin sandwich. I would call it Markception, because it reminds me of the movie Inception, a movie that talks about and has a plot point of dreams being inside dreams. And to be honest, if I were to like edit this and, and, and spice up Mark's writing a little bit to have a chance to retool some of, some of the gospel stuff, I would add other elements of Inception to this gospel. For instance, a banging techno soundtrack and uh, well-fitted suits. And if I were then to like go to other gospels, I would add other things to them. Like, you know, John talks about knowledge a lot, so I'd probably put a big castle in there with an the all-knowing wizard. Luke is a pretty smart guy, so I'd give him a spaceship. And then um, in the book of Matthew, it starts with a family tree. It's like those ants from uh, Lord of the Rings. It'd be pretty cool to put those in there. And that escalated pretty quickly, and it's no wonder why God has never asked me to write a gospel for him, because it would just be super out of hand all the time. This this idea of Markception, the, the Mark and Sandwich, uh, it reminds me of, of Inception and before that, um, a, a film called The Matrix in another way. And that if you were to kind of ask somebody, like, what is the story about? A lot of us would focus on the amazing works that Jesus did. And they are indeed amazing. Jesus heals a woman. Jesus raises a little girl from the dead. But as I begin to, to read this and, and think about it, to me, those aren't the, the, the primary takeaways from this. In fact, the primary takeaways for me from this text are more questions than they are answers. You get to the end of the movie, Inception, and um, you get to a place where there seems to be resolution, but there's not resolution, right? And what the, the, the filmmaker wants you to do is to really contemplate what's real and what's not real. And what role does faith have in all of that, especially as it pertains to us and the things that we do, the decisions that we make, and our actions. When I look at, at this text, I see a lot of those uh, same, same questions raised. Uh, there are other questions that raise that, that don't get resolved that we can kind of get bogged down in, right? This notion of why does Jesus choose to heal these people when he doesn't heal other people? I think sometimes when we get a little bit too bogged down in the details and in the flashiness of what Jesus does here, it can raise questions for us as to, well, like, what is it that Jesus wants to do in my life? Who does Jesus want to raise from the dead? Look, at the end of the day, um, the, the, the lady that Jesus heals is not given perpetual immortality. At some point in time, she does pass away. At some point in time, this girl that, that Jesus raises from the dead, like while, while he uh, ministers to this family in their grieving and gives them a moment of life, eventually life does catch up to her. And we see this in, in the world around us. Some of us have seen people who have had great uh, miraculous comebacks in their lives and, and healings. And there are times where we see people who are taken from us too tragically, and it's difficult to reconcile why sometimes it, it ends uh, in our favor and why sometimes it doesn't. There's a great mystery there, isn't there, to life and to death on this earth. Sometimes we even see that uh, in one person's life. 
Our family had a, a dear friend pass away earlier this week. You know, just a few years ago, he had been fighting cancer, and, and it looked like he, he was at the end of his life. I mean, he made a, a miraculous comeback. There was some medicine that was involved in that. I think there was some faith that was involved in that. And he went on to live these, like, extra productive few years. He was super involved in, in, in the community and got a lot of amazing acts of service done. He was able to spend more time with his grandkids. He was able to minister to people around him. And then all of a sudden, a couple of weeks ago, like a couple of weeks after I had sat with him at, at the homecoming football game, um, the call came that, that he wasn't doing well, only to find out that, that after he had fought off cancer once, that cancer had surprisingly taken over his whole body. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, death took him sooner than a lot of us expected. And so even within that one life, you have this tension that we always wrestle with of, of hope the hope that we have that, that God can break through and work and preserve and protect us and, and bring us that joy and do miracles, but also the reality that eventually we have to say goodbye to people. In this particular text, as Jesus is doing miracles, I want us to, to think about these questions of, of faith and of approaching this God who truly can do anything and desires to transform our lives the text starts with Jesus and he comes to shore and a great crowd has gathered around him because as we have seen, Jesus has been doing a lot of miracles. Jesus' fame has been rising throughout the book of Mark. And now people have not only heard about him, not only are wanting to check him out, but they're expecting that he will do things. And so there is this great throng of, of people. We've also seen that throughout the book of Mark, uh, there has been a delineation between the people who are supportive of Jesus, or at least interested in Jesus, and people who are becoming Jesus adversaries. The people who are becoming Jesus adversaries are primarily those folks who are in the Jewish religious establishment. Because as Jesus comes, and as Jesus begins to preach new messages, and as Jesus becomes to be more popular, they see that their status is threatened. A lot of the, the people who are Jewish religious leaders at that time, they have set themselves apart against Jesus. They're the ones who, who, who are being the haters. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to get him to say something wrong. They're trying to be able to look at him and say, no, you have done something here that is sinful. And, and Jesus has been doing his little fancy dances with the words and with the actions, and, and he's been getting out of it. But then this one guy comes, and his name's Jairus, and he's a religious leader, so you think he would be opposed to Jesus, but he comes to Jesus with a request. In fact, not just a request, but very publicly, in front of everybody, in front of all of these people, falls at Jesus' feet. You think about what kind of an act of humility that is, to think about losing your, your, your position, to think about losing your status, to think about these other religious leaders, probably the minute that you do this, the minute that you bow down at the feet of Jesus and make a request of him, the rest of them are going to assume that you're aligned with Jesus and they're going to try to push you out. It's an amazing change of heart. It's a plot twist, but he does this, this, this act of humility because he's desperate. He's desperate. The most desperate place that you can be in, his child is ill. 
And so he's like, Jesus, my, my daughter, she's, she's about to, to die. Come lay hands on her. These words of faith, this act of faith to pursue Jesus in front of all these people say, I know that you can do this. I know that you can make her well. I know that you can make her alive. And, and Mark says that Jesus just went with him. Jesus wasn't like, oh, now you need my help, huh? Look at you come, come groveling to me. All right, maybe I'll come see what I could do. No, Jesus just, just went with him. And not only does Jesus go with him, but the whole entire crowd starts following Jesus. There's a parade. It's a miracle of parade. And the electricity's buzzing because people have heard what Jesus can do. And now there's been a request, and now Jesus is responding to that request. And there's even this, this, this tension of this relational drama that's happening. Is Jesus really going to do this? Is like Jesus going to have some hidden camera people come out, and it's going to be a surprise, and he's going to walk away? What is Jesus going to do, and will this girl live? And as these people are moving, there's a lady who's very different from Jairus. She's not a lady who has power. She's not a lady who has, has influence. She's probably not a lady who has said much to, to, about Jesus around her. She's a lady who's been pushed to, to the outskirts. But as Jesus comes by, this woman who has been ill, this woman whom doctors have seen, and she's just gotten worse, and she spent all her money, and she has no hope in anything around her. She reaches out to touch Jesus' cloak because she believes that if she can just touch his cloak, that she can be healed. You ever tried to like just touch anybody famous before? Anybody you thought was powerful? I used to try to do that when I was a kid. My dad, um, not in a creepy way, my dad uh, had Portland Trailblazers season tickets. When the season tickets would come in the mail, it would come in this giant envelope, and he, he like would sort out some where he would go to games with his friends, and in later years, as they got more expensive, he'd split some games up, but he still had a lot of games. And then he'd be like, all right, come on, choose you know, one or two games that you definitely want to go to. And this was a big decision for me. Like, who did I want to go see play basketball? And usually what I would want to see is I would want to see one of the famous players from the other team. So like, if the Bulls were on there, I was taking those Bulls tickets because I was going to go see Michael Jordan. But then I would also have this other checklist of who haven't I seen before. Haven't seen Magic Johnson played, I'll take those Lakers tickets. Haven't seen Larry Bird play, I'll take those Celtics tickets. And I had this, this thing that I would do when I would go to the games. We would go a little bit early. It was a smaller arena. Arenas were smaller back then. It's only 12,000 people could, could fit in the arena now. All these arenas are like 18 to 20,000 people. And the setup was incredibly different because now they protect the players because y'all crazy. They don't know if y'all are going to like come out and, you know, cut somebody or spit on somebody, flip somebody a bad finger or something. So they try to protect the players a little bit. Um, back then there was no protection for the players. The only protection there was, I could walk down, I could be within seven feet of the Portland Trailblazers or the guest team locker room door. And all there was was like two or three ushers holding a yellow rope. And they would hold that yellow rope onto the court. And as long as only my arm went over that yellow rope, the ushers didn't even care. And so before the game, I would go to the opposite team after they had finished warming up. And I'd go and I'd like slap their hands as they were coming through. And I didn't know what happened. I was like, man, at the very least, let me just get some Michael Jordan sweat on my hand. But maybe I could monster him and like a little bit of his basketball prowess would come into me. And so, you know, Michael Jordan would be coming on and I'd get like, I was a little kid, eight years old, 10 years old, I'd get my deep voice 
good luck tonight, Mike. You know, slap his hand. I go up to my dad. I touch Michael Jordan's hand. And then at halftime, when the teams would come out of halftime, I would go down to the Blazers locker room, and I would wish all of them good luck for the second half. Good luck, Duck. Good luck, Clyde. Good luck, Jerome. And they go out on the court. Um, and then after the game, I'll go back to the opposite side, and the Blazers are pretty good. They usually win. I'll be sorry, Mike. Good job, man. It was a nice try. You know, I'm sure it was an indelible memory for all of them, just as it was for me. But all I wanted to do was, like, see these dudes whose pictures I have from Sports Illustrated on my wall, who I had seen on NBA Inside Stuff, who I had seen on the highlights, who I watched, who I listened to on the radio. I just wanted to, I just wanted to be next to them, man. I just wanted to touch them. I just wanted my, my hand to smell like pro basketball sweat until I got home and my mom said, you stink, go wash your hand. That's all I wanted. That was this, this level even more of desperation that this woman has because not only could she get close to the influence of Jesus, but man, she truly believed that Jesus could change her life because she had heard the reports of him. And so she comes up behind him and, and she touches his garment. And when she does it, this is just one of the, the, the more incredible and fascinating and mysterious stories regarding agency in the Bible. Um, it says that Jesus felt the power rush out of him and, and that she was healed. And, and it's crazy. So he turns around then and says, who touched me? I don't know, like maybe Jesus knew who touched him and he just was trying to, like that was his conversation starter. It, it seems as though as the power comes out of him that, that like was that something that he meant to do that intentionally happened? Like maybe he didn't know, I don't know, but he asked the question, who touched me? And can you imagine what you're feeling if you're that woman? On the one hand, you feel more alive than you have in like forever. You feel whole, this, this rush of supernatural energy comes into you and you're healed. And on the other hand, I think you would be like more freaked out than you had ever been in your life. Because not only did this work, but then Jesus like, who, who did that? Who did that? And it was one act of bold, courageous faith for this woman to even approach Jesus and touch him. And it was another act of bold, courageous faith for her to not just melt into the crowd or melt into the ground, but to come to Jesus and tell him the whole entire story. And then for him to respond to her very intimately, very intimately and very tenderly and to say, daughter, it is your faith that has made you well. Now go in peace and be healed of your disease. And isn't that an incredible picture of a God who is accessible to us in our lowest moments, that is accessible to the people in society who are looked down upon, who are ignored, who everybody has given up on, who people have even taken advantage of, and not just that Jesus heals her and then moves her down the line like, like, like some kind of task that has been completed, but says to her, daughter, daughter, go in peace and be healed. Well, now we're back to our other story because Jesus is still on his way somewhere, isn't he? And so after he heals this woman and after he has this conversation with her, some time has passed and, and the people from Jairus's house, they come and they say to him, you know what? It's too late. It's too late. Don't worry about it. The girl, she, she has died and, and it's over. And Jesus does something peculiar, tells everybody to go away except for three people, the inner circle. He's got Peter and he's got James and he's got John and, and, and they go to the house of this religious leader 
And I think there are some people who are probably there with expectation, but clearly now there are a lot of people whose hopes have been turned to doubt. And whatever hope they had, whatever lottery ticket they thought Jairus had purchased by inviting Jesus to their home that this little girl might be healed, now that she was dead, they really didn't think that Jesus would be able to, to do anything. And Jesus, with his, his kind of surgical uh, wit, <laughs> a little bit of sarcasm, walks into the house and just asks, why, why are you crying? Why are you weeping? She's not dead, but she is, is sleeping. And the people, not for the first time in his life, not for the last time in his life, they, they laugh at Jesus. They scoff. They don't think that, that this comeback is within the realm of what he is able to do. But he takes her by the hand. He takes her by the hand. And just as his interaction with that very vulnerable, sick, uh, one could even say oppressed woman was a, a beautiful moment of tenderness with Jesus, here he says to her, in, her, in, in, in Aramaic, this is one of the only times that we see uh, like a direct quote from Jesus in the language that he would have spoken um, as he went about and walked around and talked to people. He said, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately she gets up, everybody's overcome with amazement. And just to prove the point, she's not a ghost, that this isn't some kind of joke. He tells her to go, and it tells people to go and to give her something to eat. There are some similarities between these two narratives that are woven together as one. There are some differences between these two narratives that are woven together as one. You have a parson in Jairus who has to, to, to humble himself before Jesus. There was a, is a block there, and the block that is there is social status. The block that is there is being able to sustain his, his family. The block that is there is, I think, even for him a little bit, some of his own disbelief that Jesus is who he says he is because everybody around him is saying that this man is a fraud, he's a usurper, he's a charlatan. And yet... Jairus humbles himself and goes to Jesus. That's a little bit different from the woman who instead of, of, of having to bring herself down so that she can approach Jesus in her faith, she kind of has to talk herself up. She has to be able to say that, yes, Jesus cares even for me. Even if people have been ignoring me, even if people have been taking my money, even if I've been getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and it seems as though God and everybody else has abandoned me, I have to believe right now in this moment that Jesus won't abandon me, but that Jesus views me as his daughter. They both have to believe that Jesus has power over all things. And we see this with, with the variety of miracles that Jesus does. Sometimes he casts out demons. Sometimes he provides food for people. Other times he provides physical healings. Sometimes he provides teachings that, that are, are, are revolutionary and that people haven't heard before and that change folks' paradigms. They both have to seek out Jesus, don't they? And they both have to have this moment. They both have to have this moment after their act of faith and after their moment of, of, of request where they really have to question what's going on and what has just happened. For the woman, it's can I really believe that Jesus has healed me? And now that he has healed me, can I admit to him what I've done? And for Jairus, it's as he's walking up to his house that moment of, I would imagine, a little bit of, of doubt and at least feeling tenuous and rocky in the situation, thinking it's too late and I've put everything on the line, 
very publicly, and now it's come to nothing. You know, I think um, for us and where we stand today, maybe there's not a lot of resolution here, but maybe there are some questions that we can ask of ourselves. Maybe there are some questions that we can ask of ourselves that will then allow us to approach this Jesus who wants to be approached by us. The first of which is, is what, what is our roadblock to approaching Jesus? What's our roadblock to approaching Jesus? Because I think there are some of us who for so long, either we felt that we can do everything on our own or we've projected to everybody around us that we can do everything on our own. That we're so good, that we're so powerful, that we're so talented, that we don't need God that we don't need this, this, this thing, this, this worship, this community. And there's this humbling that has to happen for us if we're going to say, you know what, I can't do it all on my own. And there are others of us in this room for whom the roadblock is our own sense of unworthiness because so many people have told us we aren't worthy because so many things have not worked because we've been stuck in darkness or in pain or in despair or in doubt for so long it's going to take just an act of courage and an act of bravery for us to say, yeah, I truly am a son of God. I truly am a daughter of God. And that God does want to reach out and have me live a life that is full of peace. And as we figure out what that block is, then are we really willing? Have we come to scripture just as the people have, they didn't go to scripture, but they had heard the claims of what Jesus was doing. Have we taken seriously the claims of what scripture says that Jesus did the claims that Jesus makes of himself, and if we had cultivated that and allowed God to cultivate that so that it has, has started to, to bubble up inside of us as an act of faith. Because approaching God is indeed an act of faith. And as we get ready to approach God with that spirit maybe of repentance that Jairus had, with that spirit of boldness that the woman had, are we able to act at least in a moment with a sense of expectancy, knowing that God can work in our lives, knowing that God does have power over all things, knowing that God does want to, in the very mundane and everyday, have these moments of tenderness with us, knowing that, that, that God does see us, can we come to God with expectancy? And if, if God's answer is wait, or if God's answer is not yet, or if God's answer is there's going to be a process, or if God's answer is I will grant you this thing in this moment, or if God's answer is this is not what's best for you, but you are still my daughter, I still offer you peace, I still speak to you where you're at. Can we stick with Jesus in our response? Like that woman, can we still have a conversation with Jesus? Like Jairus, can we still say, okay, Jesus, still please, come into my home, and I'm still going to trust you, even though this has gotten intense, and it seems a little bit darker than I have imagined, and has not at this point in time met my expectations. Look, Jesus has shown that he has power over all things. Jesus has shown that while he was doing an amazing, great thing on a grand scale for all of us, that he still sees each of us. Jesus has spoken to us, called us his daughters and his sons, wants us to go in peace, wants us to be people who are healed. Where is our faith at in this moment? What is the interaction right now that our lives are having with our faith and the greatness, the authority, the supremacy of God? 
And as we think about those things, as we consider those things, as we humble ourselves, as hopefully we find ourselves emboldened, can we come to God with that sense of expectancy, knowing that our God is a God who wants to change our life? Those are the questions that I want us to ask ourselves and ask of our God as we continue in worship today. God, we do thank you that you are amazing and powerful, that you have power over all things. We do thank you, God, that you are approachable. And we thank you for these stories of Jesus that we can have that start to flesh out a little bit of what it looks like to live life with you. And we know that it has to be viewed in the entire uh, corpus of scripture, that it takes a long time for us just to, to search these things out and try them. But I pray, God, that even today you would be planting seeds in our hearts, that we could come to you with the parts of our lives that do need healing internally, externally, that we could lay those before you that we can be patient to wait for you to work. And that through that process of even petitioning you and waiting on you, through that one little act of faith, that our faith could grow, that your glory could be made known. In Jesus' name, amen.